Welcome back to Peds Ortho. We're very excited to have you guys back on the on the program today, and we're excited for a lot of things coming up here in the next couple months in the pediatric orthopedic world. But most importantly, we're excited for tonight's episode and the guest we have with us, who is someone who I know quite well from my program here at University of Iowa. We're excited to have Heather Kowalski join us on the program today. Heather, welcome Thank to you. the program. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, and I am here with my normal three other co-hosts, so I will let them each take a minute and introduce themselves. All right, here we are in alphabetical order by height. I am Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. Uh, This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. Wonderful. Heather, welcome. Um, it's it's honestly nice to have you on the program, one of my partners at the University of Iowa. I know you quite well. Um, but our audience does not necessarily know you quite well. So the first thing I'm going to do is just ask a few questions to help those listeners get to know you a little bit. So first question, you and your husband, I know, do a lot of traveling. So number one, your favorite place to travel and why? Well, my favorite place to travel is Singapore. We've been all over the world, lots and lots and lots of places. um, But We've been to Singapore twice together. My husband's been there three times and we're actually taking both of our kids there in December um, and celebrating Christmas and New Year's in Singapore. It's the cleanest place I've ever been in the entire world. Uh, The diversity there is incredible in terms of population uh, and just experiences. And the food there is out of this world. Perfect. Singapore, never been, but I'll put it on my list. Okay. (laughs) Next question is, if you had to only operate with an intern or a chief, which one would you choose and why? So uh, luckily those are the two I get to operate with. So I either have a five or a one. Um, I like to operate with the interns because they are much more malleable and uh, a lot more trainable. Many of the fives are already determined in what they're going to go into. So they really couldn't give two craps about um, spending time on the peds world. However, you know, if I'm doing a big hip case and I can let the chief go, it's really a fun, fun thing to do. Okay, and getting back to your travel, bucket list place where you haven't been yet. Oh, man, that's tough. Australia is probably, you know, Australia, New Zealand. I know you've been that way. Um, I think that's that's probably it's such a big trip. You got to be gone for quite a while. But I think that's that's probably my big one. And then the same question that we seem to ask everyone, one <laughs> instrument that you could choose to operate with the rest of your life, only one, what would it be? A freer. All right. I feel like everyone has an easy answer to that question. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Here's a cob. No, I free your elevator as well. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. All right. So um, one of the reasons why I asked you to be on the program is um, some of the work that you've done at our institution with simulation mm-hmm. and really resident education as a whole. I know it's something that's quite passionate um, to you getting residents involved and and really promoting the field even beyond and before they get into residency with some of the the school and the pre-med and those sort of things that you get involved with. So I picked a couple of the recent studies that have been published in Jay Posna back in their special simulation edition, but why don't you just take a couple minutes and tell us kind of what started that um, drive for you and kind of where you're at in the simulation world. 
So our university has had this um, fracture reduction simulator kind of in the works for a few years. And I came upon it probably five years ago at this point. And we were trying to figure out how to, so it was, it was originally designed um, to pin, to teach residents how to pin uh, adult hip fractures. And our, our trauma partner was showing it to me and I was like, wow, this is super cool. We could adapt this to pediatric elbow pinning. And he was like, all right, talk to our engineers. Let's see if we can do this. The biggest adaptation of it was going from pinning with one single pin to figuring out how to adapt it to pinning with three pins and allowing our technology to um, to recognize all three of the pins and to be able to demonstrate them in space. And so from the very beginning, kind of the simulator already existed, but my role was more of a, how do we adapt this to a pediatric application? And then how do we make it feel lifelike in terms of pinning an elbow? Um, and that kind of led to applying for a POSNA directed grant, uh, which allowed us the funding from POSNA to be able to kind of advance this forward. And we've taken it way beyond what I ever <laughs> imagined it would start out as. So now we've we've adapted it not only to elbow pinning, but now we're starting to adapt it into the elbow reduction portion of our simulator and then also um, skiffy pinning. So it's been it's been quite the quite the progression over time. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So any of our listeners who aren't sure or familiar with what we're talking about, there's uh, Jay Posna had a special edition in August of this year that's really focused on simulation in residency programs. And there's a, a whole slew of different simulation models and, and instruments that programs around the country have used. And it's a pretty good special edition because it comes with videos and demonstrations and kind of how to use and how to set up and even including cost data and things that you might need to set up a similar simulation in your own program. So if you haven't seen it, certainly get on the website and check it out. But one of the things you mentioned, Heather, is the the reduction aspect of the simulator. So Mm -hmm. how do you think that factors in? And and even with um, the simulation, you've done some studies looking at residents pre and post simulation training in the OR and fluoro shots and things. So, I mean, where do you see that going as far as resident education? What's the, what's the ceiling on this? Ultimately the, the grant that we submitted um, to POSNO was actually ultimately end goal of getting the simulator into IPOS top gun. Um, so when I was a fellow, actually I was in, I was one of the, the, the participants in IPOS Top Gun. And I thought that was a really cool, per, you know, a cool project, a good, um, way to get involved, a, you know, healthy competition. And so that was, that was ultimately our goal when we wrote the grant. Um, we haven't quite gotten there yet. I think getting the fracture reduction portion of it is going to be more helpful because it's not only then going to be, can you pin a supercondylar, which I imagine most, fifth year residents and, you know, Pete's fellows should be able to at least do the mechanics of pinning an elbow, but can you reduce the fracture and then also pin the fracture? I think that is going to be the most attractive to Top Gun. Um, It is actually currently being used in the OTA fellows fracture course. So they actually use our supercondylar pinning simulator as one of the stations. Um, And they've been doing that for the last couple of years. Originally, they just had it kind of as a trial. And then last year, this, this past year and the year prior in 21, they actually had it as a station um, at the OTA fellows. So I think it's not fair that the trauma fellows get to use it and the PEDS fellows don't. But 
Um, and we've also, our department has presented it at um, the, actually the ABOS as kind of the ABOS is moving towards, should we have some sort of didactic way to grade graduates in order to certify them. And so it's kind of one of the things that um, our chairman has been <clears throat> really pushing forward and enthusiastic about. And so they actually presented it to ABOS recently. Yeah. And when I think of um, simulation and think of like the arthroscopy simulators and things like mm -hmm. that, my mind kind of quickly goes to, you know, intern year, second year prepping for hip scope or knee scopes or shoulder scopes or things. And, you know, going and spending an hour scoping around, picking up floating coins and other silly things on a, on a shoulder or knee simulation. But you mentioned a couple things of, you know, fellows doing this, of using it as a benchmark that you have to meet before you can graduate or things like that. I mean, is that realistic in your mind that a simulator could be sensitive and specific enough and, and require enough skill to be used at a more kind of senior level? Sure. So, I mean, our, our early studies showed, and actually what I presented at POSNA this year about the supercondylar pinning simulator is that you could actually differentiate between a novice and a faculty or a fifth-year resident um, pretty reliably. And we we used uh, residents as well as faculty from multiple different residency training programs. So it wasn't just our own training program. So I think that gave it a lot more, a lot more weight. So it did show quite a bit of sensitivity um, between at least a novice and someone who is skilled at it. And there wasn't much difference between an attending and a, um, a fourth year or a fifth year, which I think is appropriate because you shouldn't really be graduating residency if you can't pin an elbow. So I think, you know, if, if we're moving in that direction, I think it would be a great addition to some sort of a benchmark. You know, there's lots of other important procedures that are necessary, but pinning an elbow teaches you hand-eye coordination and teaches you triangulation in space. You can certainly spread that. Um, you can use that knowledge for multiple other procedures in what we do. So I think it's very applicable to not just pinning an elbow, but it's a good kind of benchmark that shows that you know how to start something in one position and know where it's going to end up. Yeah. And I think that's really a, a key with simulation. It is applicable across kind of all disciplines of orthopedics, kind of that hand-eye coordination, three-dimensional imagery and being able to end up where you want to be without necessarily seeing that end goal beforehand is applicable to kind of all things that we do. Um, the last question I have about your kind of simulation studies, where do we go from kind of the simulator to the OR. Is there, I know at our program, we've talked about things, but I'm curious your thoughts. Should there be a requirement that people spend X amount of time or become a certain level of proficiency on the simulator before then kind of graduating up to being able to do it in the operating room? Yeah, that's a great question. So we were actually really right now working on writing up our, our findings on translation to the operating room. And what we found, which isn't published yet, but it's in the final stages of being written up, is that practicing on the simulator um, and being proficient, so testing out of the simulator with our simulation kind of protocol that we have, was equivalent to 10 procedures, uh, 10 supracondylar elbow pinnings on the case logs. We used the, the residents' ACGME case logs and looked at how many each of the residents had when they did their cases in the operating room and whether they had been trained on the simulator or not. And we're actually comparing how efficient they are, essentially. So how many floral images it took, how much time it took. 
And basically, if you use the simulator, it was equivalent to 10 procedures in the operating room. So I think that would be super helpful because it saves those 10 patients from your trial and error. If you can do it on the simulator and show that you're proficient at it, you're not trying on someone else's four-year-old. And having a four-year-old, I don't really want someone monkeying around with his elbow. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, all the stuff you're saying is really even based on the pinning only model and doesn't even incorporate some of the fracture reduction model, which, like you said, adds a whole nother level of complexity and kind of reality to it. Um, So we'll shift gears. Any any of the co-hosts have any specific questions for Heather regarding simulation? I, I wanted to hear a little bit about how in an ideal world you would implement it in a residency training program. Uh, I think it's really, uh, really nice that you have the data to show that the simulator training doesn't just lead to better simulator performance, but it seems like better OR performance, at least in thinning. So, I mean, it, it seems to me like in an ideal world, we would have all of our residents doing that before they go on the PED service. So we can sure. teach them to reduce, but when it comes to pinning, that part seems fairly automatic and low stress. What would be ideal and what are you guys currently doing? Sure. So what we do right now, um, all of our interns actually during our intern skills month get to practice on it, but they don't go through the whole protocol. They kind of get to like see what it is about and kind of get introduced to it. But then um, during the second half of second year, right before our, so our second years do what's called a buddy call. Um, So they take a third year resident level call as a second year um, twice during the end of their second year so that they can be prepared for taking mid-level call. Right before they do that buddy call, they actually um, go through the whole training protocol on the simulator. So a couple of days ahead of time, we identify when that call shift is coming up. Our researcher actually does the whole protocol with them. And then assuming and hoping that they will then have an elbow to pin in the next, you know, during their buddy calls that shift or shortly before they start their third year rotations when they'll be pinning the elbows. Uh, And so that's kind of how we've integrated it. We also now have a week-long second-year resident uh, skills week. And they're also, now we're going to incorporate it into that so that they're all getting the same protocol. And it's not, it's, it's, we're trying to make it very um, standardized instead of it used to be just kind of if we remembered to train them before their um, call shift came up. So Um, we're integrating it during second year before they would be the ones pinning the elbows in third year. Okay. Real quick follow-up. How long does the training take? Um, So there's an online portion that they do that's kind of like an introduction to the actual like how you pin a supercondylar and they have to go through that online training that takes about 30 minutes. And then the performance on the actual simulator is an additional 30 minutes or so. So it's not really an onerous um, process to do, depending on, you know, how long it takes them on the simulator. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, so one more kind of follow-up question. I actually had the opportunity uh, to teach at the OTA uh, fracture course last year, and so I I was able to use the simulator, uh, and it's awesome, I will say. Uh, It is actually kind of difficult because the the sawbone inside is very small. Um, It's like a baby (laughs) elbow. Um, So a lot of their residents initially were were just totally missing the bone completely. You can scab pretty easily. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So, but I think one of the things that I've noticed, not just with that simulator, but other simulators that I've used is this, the soft tissue is a really hard part to simulate, yeah. you know, cause saw bones, obviously we've, we've kind of got that down. They're not perfect, but they're okay. Um, you know, and the bone model is good. The soft tissue is, I think where I struggle a little bit with the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, are there like, I'm sure there are people working on that, on how to make soft tissue better. Like, what do you see as, as kind of like the next step in simulation as far as getting like the rest of the anatomy there? 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, so it, it has been a challenge. Um, we have gone through multiple, multiple different attempts and trials. Um, it's actually been harder with the fracture reduction portion because we have to recreate a triceps. We have to, re, you know, the pull of the triceps on the distal fragment. We have to recreate the lateral collaterals and the medial collaterals and at least some way. And, we, you know, we had to recreate um, so sawbones makes the distal humerus, but sawbones doesn't make um, a radius and an ulna that, that match it. Um, so we actually 3D printed, uh, one of our engineering uh, students 3D printed uh, our models for our fracture reduction. So we've we've gone through a ton of different trials and errors with our simulation, or with our engineering team, to try to come up with something that feels kind of lifelike. I, I would love if someone would come up with something genius, uh, but yeah, I agree 100%. It has been a little bit of a struggle. Um, it's usually some foam or some kind of rubberized something. Um, we've tried lots of different iterations, but if anybody out there has any great ideas, I'm all ears about how we simulate what the soft tissue should be. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's it's way more difficult than it sounds like it should be, right? Like you should be able to just make it, and it, it but it's, it's hard. Um, I think one other cool thing that I kind of envision is, some sort of sensor in there where the nerves are so that if they Ooh. like hit hit a nerve with a pin it like it's like that game operation right like the, the yeah. red light goes off and it zings or something like that yeah oh, it should um, shock them it should absolutely like shock yeah them. oh wow get really hardcore okay but yeah like I, I think that would be a really cool um addition to it yeah that's awesome i love that idea yeah and one of the fun things getting involved with some of this is some of the cross-departmental collaboration because working with the engineers and working with them you know they get really excited about this and they get really excited and have a lot of great ideas stuff that certainly I hadn't thought of before and so it certainly kind of promotes some across campus interactions between the medical and the engineering fields and departments which I think certainly can advance the field because they think about this stuff um, in different ways than we do so building some collaboration is good. Um, Heather, we sort of talked about a bunch of specifics of a supercondylar. What other types of simulation are in the pipeline? So this specific technology with our infrared cameras and our, um, our biplanar imaging, we have adult hip fracture pinning simulator. We have the elbow, the supercondylar. We have a skiffy pinning simulator. Um, so we use the sawbone skiffy model. And then Currently in the works is the SI screw placement with the same technology, um, which has been pretty cool. And those are the ones we've got kind of currently um, in the works with the same technology. And then there's like, it looked like in one of the articles, there's like a plafond reduction as well. Is that like a different uh, kind of technology you'd say? Also a simulator that was designed at our institution, um, slightly different technology, but yes, we, they also have one of, we, our department also has one of those that we use with uh, our, during our intern skills month um, so that we can teach the interns kind of, kind of how to put fragments back together and how to put pins and screws and make it look like an actual bone. Cool. And then there's this really interesting situation. It sounded like from the articles where basically a startup has formed out of your department after yep. generating these. Um, so are, are those the, like sort of the four products that the startup offers or is it Currently, not all yeah. of those? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, I don't know that. So the SI and the Skippy aren't like commercially available yet, but those are in the works. They are pretty close to being available, but adult hip fracture Pinning one, um, as well as the supercondylar, are commercially available. Okay. And then just sort of for disclosure purposes, are either of you guys involved with that startup? Just sadly, with sort of no. The, sadly, no. <laughs> not. 
They're conflicted to not have conflict. Correct. (laughs) Devastated. No conflict. (laughs) What's what's sort of the vision? Do you know for like is the plan for that to grow into a a big offering for Mm -hmm. sort of broad orthopedic simulation? Or I think that's that's the ultimate dream. So I gave two presentations on our simulator experience uh, at POSNA this year, and several different people from different places uh, have asked, and actually we've sent our engineer with the simulator, and people have actually purchased it. So uh, you should definitely get some marketing fees. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's my role. I'm the face <laughs> of, of our products, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so we've, we've definitely um, had several people reach back out to us, and there are simulators in several different places. And we don't really have an ask that you like study it or anything like that. But anyone who has one of the simulators, if they are interested, we are more than happy to collaborate and continue to pool our data. Um, One of our sites actually in the research that I presented at POSNA was um, in Denmark. So like we've got this kind of all over the place. Um, The the group up in Minnesota is one of our other sites. It's been multi-centered intentionally to try to gather not just from our own uh, cohort. Cool. Well, interesting situation. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. If you got any ideas of how I can be financially invested, I'd be, my husband would appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're killing the marketing. I hope they appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, my husband is also a surgeon, so my life is chaos. (laughs) (laughs) This episode sponsored by Iowa Spine Simulation, Inc. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, let's change, shift gears a little bit. Dr. Kowalski, you um, have other passions as well. And one of those is some of the work that you do in, in the department. And like I mentioned before, even not just within the residency, but the medical school and even before that in promoting medicine among um, different populations and promoting medicine and orthopedics um, among different gender and ethnic and other um, diverse populations. So do you want to just take a minute and share with the listeners some of the work that you're promoting and ways that they may be able to get involved at their own programs and and, um, hospitals? Sure. Yeah. So um, definitely promoting uh, diversity in orthopedics has been kind of my passion coming to it from a a program that uh, we had had. So my, my residency training, we'd had several women that came before me, but just, you know, not a lot. And so it's kind of been my, my passion. And I feel like the, the single best way that we can promote diversity is early exposure. And the only way for someone to know that they could want to be an orthopedic surgeon is to have some sort of exposure to someone who is an orthopedic surgeon. And the earliest exposure way that um, I've gotten involved in is our med school has um, some middle school STEM days And um, several of us, um, the women of our department in particular, have uh, put together an orthopedic station at the, the STEM day for the fifth and sixth graders. And I think that's a great way just to get them involved. Other things that I do, I am very involved in the first year of medical school um, at our med school. So I so I teach a small group. Um, I give three of the orthopedic lectures for our second year medical students. And so the more they see what the diverse face of orthopedics is earlier in their uh, medical education, uh, the more that people will identify that it might be something that they could do rather than thinking, oh, every orthopedic surgeon looks the same. So I think really exposure early on is huge. Um, I helped to start a women in ortho interest group at our medical school. 
And I'm also super involved in Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. I am, I'm on the mentoring committee. So I've kind of gotten involved um, in that direction. And then speaking of Ruth Jackson, kind of one of the coolest things I love about Iowa is that we are the home of Ruth Jackson, um, the first female orthopedic surgeon. And we actually have a Ruth Jackson visiting student scholarship every summer. Um, so we take two, typically two students every year um, and sponsor them. And they are, they come and spend a month at our rotate at our, res, at our program and rotate with us on a, on a scholarship. So that's another super unique thing that I've, and I'm a mentor every year for at least one of the, the two students that comes and rotates with us. Yeah, and like you mentioned, you know, our, our program chair has been very actively involved in really promoting mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion within orthopedics. And one of the recent things that he's been doing is sponsoring and promoting the residents to be able to go to the Ruth Jackson meetings and some of the annual things that they have. And for those listeners who don't know, certainly there's a lot of different scholarship and a lot of different opportunities Um to promote diversity and inclusion in orthopedics. So if it's not a part of your program or if it's a small part and you're looking to grow it, certainly um, there's a lot of national and um, other local ways to get involved early on and throughout the medical training and even into residency programs. So I'm curious at your other programs for the co-host, are there things that um, your programs do to promote diversity and inclusion that our listeners may benefit from knowing about? Uh, there, there are a good number at, at mine, and the one that I really wanted to bring up and uh, selfishly get Heather's input on is school outreach, because we're working to build our school outreach program. I've been spending a lot of time on that recently, so I was sort of curious, since I've been thinking about this a lot, what, what does that station, that orthopedic station you mentioned at the STEM days look like? What have you guys sort of settled on as the way to present yourselves? Uh, so it's, it's pretty fun. We do, um, so this is the, the one that we do primarily is for middle schoolers. Uh, and so we have, we have a station where they get to play with plaster. And so they like literally just bring in rolls of plaster and let them feel it and work with it. And we bring them gloves and we show them kind of examples of what we use plaster for, for casting. And then we let them make a little trinket to take home and they can come back at the end of the day and take it with them. Um, and that seems to be very well received. We also have a Sawbones um, station where they can, there's, you know, drills and screws and plates, and we let them see what it feels like to use a drill and to put a screw in and kind of see that, you know, these really are carpentry tools and that, you know, they really, we do use these on real humans and we show them x-rays of this is what it would look like in a real person's body on that x-ray. We also bring over um, the arthroplasty simulator, sorry, the um, arthroscopy simulator and let them play with it. Uh, That's one of the stations. I think those are the three stations that we did last year because we had just enough time to do 15 minutes per station for each of our different cohorts. Um, so just just ways to kind of show them and show them, you know, kind of what our world is kind of like, you know, a little little snippet of hands on things that they can actually experience. Yeah, that's great. I think finding ways to make it quick, but hands on is really, uh, mm-hmm. really crucial. Yeah. Um, At Colorado, we're lucky enough, our uh, uh, prior chair, uh, Robert Gambrosia, was uh, one of the winners of the Diversity Awards for the AOS, and he's really pushed diversity both in Colorado and nationally, and he um, has started a lectureship that we do every year where we have a speaker that speaks to some form of diversity within orthopedics that comes and it's a resident sort of a resident research day. It's an opportunity for there to be some 
collaboration across the university. So not just within orthopedics, but also within engineering and other sides of the university. And then there's, there's always that keynote speaker who, who speaks about diversity. And I think one of the important things that I've learned from Dr. D'Ambrosia and, and from this experience is just talking about it, right? Like continuing to talk about diversity um, in a positive way and not just like, hey, you have to do your online diversity training for an hour every year, right? Like, like make it something that actually means something and that everybody can participate in. And as we continue to move the needle forward, I think with diversity in orthopedics, it, it just, we just need to keep pressing the issue and keep bringing it up and keep involving as many people as possible, because otherwise it just turns into sort of one of those annoying things that you have to do every year, like your flu shot. And, and I think that's where we don't want the diversity push to go. So. Yeah, um, not to repeat too much of what's been said. We, you know, we at Vanderbilt we have a DI committee that does book clubs and events, and we have a lectureship series that we've had. Um, so a lot of those same things. But I, I really do think the opportunity for promoting it for orthopedics is, you know, if you take women for an example, women actually make up a majority of the medical students. But the fact that they don't see orthopedists, you know, at Iowa it seems like you know Dr. Qualls here involved with them as a first year, and so that presence is probably huge. Um, and I think that approaching those uh, individuals and meeting them in their first and second years and letting them see that that's an opportunity is the sort of biggest thing you can do. And I'm personally more cognizant of it when I see a second or third year who shows up in my OR and really try and show them the excitement and how cool uh, the things that we're doing are. And uh, it, I don't I think you're right, Julia, you have to have a continuous conversation. Otherwise, you don't have the awareness to really put your neck out or take time out of your day to explain things and get them excited. So I think that's what it's all about is just um, really engaging the individuals at that level. So that's, you know, personally my been my mission lately. Awesome. Yeah. Great, great conversation. Appreciate the input. So let's um, again, transition to the next phase of the show. Um, Carter, why don't you kick us off? We'll do the lightning round now. Um, Carter has a recent manuscript that'll touch on a couple of things that we've talked about, and then we can transition to Julie and Craig and hit the lightning round. Uh, you got it. So uh, we've actually sort of already had the conversation that I thought this uh, article would lead to. So I'll just make it short and sweet. But this was a uh, JAAOS original research article, and it was entitled Ethnic and Sex Diversity in Academic Orthopedic Surgery, a Cross-Sectional Study. The lightning version of it is they looked at several representative groups in academic orthopedics. You know, there's been other studies looking at diversity of residency programs in orthopedics in general. This was specifically looking at academia and not a big surprise, they basically found that ethnic and sex diversity did not match the U.S. population, specifically um, the most glaring difference, as I think we all would guess, was females. And then also Blacks and Hispanics were significantly underrepresented. So probably what you expect, but like Julia said, it's keeping the conversation going. So I think it's a valuable contribution to the literature. You know, in preparation for this, I just looked at POSNA's board and POSNA's spread, and um, they certainly have a whole section of the website um, where Dr. Sankar has given lectures recently that are published on there, as well as just looking at the people that are on the leadership boards of POSNA. I think they certainly have an emphasis on it and have done a reasonably good job at both some of the ethnic and gender diversity um, to really get a, a good spread of input and background and points of view to lead a program. Julia, let's hear yours. Let's go for it. 
uh, first lightning rod article, motorized plate lengthening of the femur in children, a preliminary report. So this is out of um, Gillette by Dr. Georgiatis and Dr. Dahl. And kind of the highlights are that this is a, a motorized plate. So similar to the motorized nails, except it's extra medullary. Um, and so they reported on their first seven patients. And so obviously really small sample size. But I guess question for uh, everybody, um, what do you think the complication rate is compared to intramedullary lengthening? Less, more, or the same? Oh, the same. The equivalence of orthopedic literature is my guess. Uh, more. Yes. More. Greg says more. Rachel says more. Okay. Uh, it's actually similar. So same complication rate, obviously really small sample size. So, um, I, you know, I think that the key here is that the same principles apply even as new technology comes in. Right. Um, and so the, the, the one thing that they noticed was a slight amount of varus um, in their regenerate, uh, but none of that required treatment specifically for the varus. Um, so I think the the kind of point of this this study is that the, I think this is going to be a technology that's available to us within the next few years. Um, and uh, as long as you're using those fundamental principles uh, regarding lengthening and distraction osteogenesis, um, you should have some pretty good luck with the extra medullary fixation as well. And then uh, I can go to my second one, which discusses angular deformities after percutaneous epiphysiogesis for leg length discrepancy. Um, and this is actually out of Oslo from uh, Journal of Children's Orthopedics. So uh, the title gives it away a little bit, but what do you guys think? Do, do you think the incidence of angular deformity after a percutaneous epiphysiogesis is significant or not significant? Meaning, does it occur or does it not occur? I hate to say it, I hadn't really thought about it much before, but when I saw the title of the article, my first thought was, uh-oh. So yeah, I bet it, I bet it is. Uh, if you measure carefully, I guess, depending on what your threshold for what you really consider a significant angular deformity is. Yeah. I bet it's, I don't know, 10 to 20%. Yeah. Good guess. Anybody else want to take a gander at it? 5% not clinically relevant. 5% not clinically relevant. Okay. I actually saw a kid today who had a percutaneous epiphysiodesis done at an outside institution and is following with me. And it's the first time I've seen this complicated. <laughs> well, perfect timing then. <laughs> I'm um, like, I, don't, I didn't know I had to watch. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt actually when I read this paper too, because I uh, hadn't really been thinking about this. So sort of interesting. So they changed, they found a change in mechanical access of more than 10, 10 millimeters, which I think is a, a reasonable kind of estimate for significance uh, in eight patients, which was 9% of their 140. Um, mean age at surgery was about 13, um, similar to skeletal age at surgery. So that was a little bit surprising to me too, that those older kids are still developing an angular deformity even after percutaneous epiphysiodesis. So their suggestion is that instead of using that standard percutaneous epiphysiodesis technique with curatage or drilling, just with the peripheral thirds of the physis, to potentially go all the way across into the central area, the physis, um, to hopefully prevent any kind of an angular deformity. Um, but definitely something to maybe look out for for all our, our listeners that might not have been thinking about that before. Julia, um, are these distal femurs? And my question is going to be, is it a two incision technique or one incision? Yeah. Um, so 71 femurs and 69 tibia. 
uh, and percutaneous technique from both sides. So a medial incision and a lateral incision. How many of you are doing single incision for distal femurs? None of you? Everyone shaking heads. I've, hey. I've done it, but I don't now. It's just, it's just easier to do both sides. Small incision, both sides. I've done it for eight years, lateral <laughs> only. And I've never seen an angular deformity. Maybe I'm not looking close enough. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And, it, you know, there's so many techniques for percutaneous epiphysiodesis. I mean, there's papers upon papers on how to do it right, you know, and I just wonder, like, is there one technique that's going to prevent complications like this? But anyway. I mean, maybe that one incision it. makes you go all the way across and get them oh, down. Oh, like, all the way across. So, yeah. So yeah. Maybe, maybe that's actually protective, even though it seems like you're doing less, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Do, um, do you all follow them until maturity then? Because I, I have been, I've, I think I've been aware of this conversation and plan to follow all these patients. I try to follow them at least a year or two. I think, you know, the, some of these patients are the ones that they have a small surgery and you tell them they look good and then they like disappear into the ether. Even if you tell them to come back, it's tough. Well, we'll all, we'll all go back and look a little closer now and see, uh, see what we're doing to the angulation of these kids' legs. Definitely. I think a good study to to be mindful of who picked that that was really smart um i've got uh i've got two articles both of them are uh, essentially questions in the title so this first one is unilateral versus bilateral reconstructive hip surgery in children with cerebral palsy a survey of pediatric orthopedic surgery practice and decision making this is from um, some of the larger canadian and american cp centers uh, boston toronto bc children's they sent a survey around uh, asking, and, and I'll, the question for you all is, uh, what would you do for this patient? So the case they gave is an eight-year-old with a GMFCS uh, level four, and he's currently got uh, hips with migration percentage of 76% on one side and 22% on the other. And they pulled the surgeons and said, what bony surgery are you doing? So obviously soft tissue uh, reconstruction. I, I think they showed them the x-ray and then there's some x-rays in the, in the study. So, uh, Dr. Kowalski, can I start with you? What bony surgery are you doing for that patient? Are you doing one side doing some work or both sides? Oh, these or are it so depends. <laughs> I mean, you said 76% on one side and 22 on the other. Yep. Age eight, I would like to do a, a one and done because I'm not as concerned about recurrence of deformity as I would be in, you know, a four-year-old. Um, I would I would probably do a varus and an acetabuloplasty on the 76 side. And depending on what the acetabulum looked like on the 22, I'd probably do a varus because I suspect that they're coxivalga and that'll make their leg lengths a little bit more symmetric um, than just doing a varus and an acetabuloplasty on the more involved side. Uh, makes it a little bit easier to get up in a stander long-term. Um, but I, man, I do a more CP than I, 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 I do a lot of CP. <laughs> And I don't know the answers. <laughs> uh, Carter, Julia, you want to weigh in? So it, is what, it sounds like what you're describing or what they're getting at is like one hip looks pretty severe on the x-ray and is the other one like essentially normal? Is that sort of The other one is theoretically covered. I mean, you don't, they don't comment on whether there's true valgus of the neck or not. Um, you presume that those changes are there. Yeah, I um, usually end up talking myself into doing both hips, but if it really looks covered and very normal at eight, I don't think I would do the acetabulum on that side. So I agree. I'd do a varus proximal femoral osteotomy if it's in valgus. Okay. 
Julie? I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with the caveat that uh, I don't uh, regularly do these anymore. So, <laughs> so uh, 28 surgeons responded to the survey. 68% said they would do um, the most involved side would be a right VDRO and a uh, pelvic osteotomy, and then um, the other remaining 32% or sorry, they said they would do the the more involved side, the VDRO and the pelvic osteotomy and the contralateral VDRO. The remaining 32 said they would just do unilateral surgery, just focus on the more involved hip, pelvic osteotomy and VDRO. And then they gave some rationale for that. So, um, you know, not telling you what you should or can do, but even the experts are split. So I don't think that there's a correct answer. And Dr. Kowalski, can I ask when you do both sides, do you do them in the same sitting or do you stage them? I almost always stage. And that's because as Dr. Holt would um, attest to, uh, I hate blood loss. I hate blood loss. I hate blood loss. I hate seeing blood. I don't like it. Everybody gets TXA. I can't stand it. And when I have something I'm doing bilateral, I usually call Josh and say, Hey, come help me. Cause I'm afraid of the blood. <laughs> we, uh, we, we joke that if, uh, if Dr. Schenker gets their hips before I get to their spine, they're never going to come back for their spine because the hip surgery is so painful. And I think that has to do with innervation, not the quality of the surgeon. But um, I think the bilateral hip procedure is like, if you do the one side, they're probably never coming back for the other side. <laughs> they're going to leave your office. I would, yeah, often <laughs> until it starts to actually, you know, sublux, they're not going to be excited about it. All right. And then the last one's a little muddier article, but um, the, the title is Fully Displaced Pediatric Supercondylar Humerus Fractures. Which ones need to go at night? I thought I would just ask you guys. Um, they talk about pink pulseless and... Uh, their conclusions are those should go. They also conclude actually that any motor nerve palsy should go at night. Um, we, I won't talk about their methods. So my question is for you guys, if you're called between the hours of 6 p.m. and 7 a.m. with a motor palsy, are you taking that patient to the OR? Yay or nay? Yay. And I'm a wimp. So even a sensory palsy, I would take at that point. Maybe especially a sensory palsy, but they just weren't able to test that. Okay. Dr. Kowalski. Uh, uh, I, so if it's going to get to the OR before midnight on a motor palsy, but warm, good palpable pulse, I'll do it before midnight. If it's not going to get to the OR between midnight and 4 a.m., I will wait and do it in the morning. We have a pretty darn good agreement with our anesthesia team at this point that although we don't have a dedicated trauma room the next day, they will get these cases done for us. Um, and if there isn't any change in exam, um, I'll take it in the middle of the night, which is a little bit of a sticking point with me and the residents. Cause if they don't call me about a change in exam, I don't know about a change in exam. So that really, that upsets me because we, I've had probably three in the last month that have been warm, perfused and are pink pulseless by the time I get them into the OR. And I don't like that because I know it's been at least, you know, 20 hours since their injury. And I don't like that. I have the luxury of a trauma room. Um, so it's a little different for me. If it's just a motor palsy and there's no other, you know, if there's skin, no skin tenting, no puckering, no significant ecchymosis, pulses are in, they're otherwise good and comfortable, then I'll wait till the next morning. Uh, but that's because I know I can get it on first case. Um, so if there's any other signs, if the skin's puckered, tented, if the swelling's significant, bad ecchymosis, I'm going to go. Julie, have you been burned with that or not? Not yet. <laughs> I'm on call um, right now, so it's probably going to happen tonight. Thank you. I'll text you tomorrow. 
<laughs> we, we, I think we have a similar philosophy or most of the, most of my partners do, uh, because there's a trauma room and I'm not used to that availability. And so I'm still having trouble coming around to the not doing it in the middle of the night sort of thing. Um, but they, they do tell me it's safe. Um, it's just a really tough thing to study. This study just looked at what they did and this was out of Boston. And so they just looked at if they took it overnight or not, not necessarily can't prove that that's the right idea. That's just a decision the surgeon made. So I think it, you know, it's valuable to a point. Uh, I think we still have to kind of do the study that looks at do the deficits evolve and is their outcome different if you waited or not. And I think that's really hard data to get with how rare these things are. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with this paper, and I, I think that's my one kind of kind of complaint about it is that I don't think you can say what we should do based on what we do now. Um, I think there needs to be more uh, more information because I think everybody kind of has their own biases and institutional differences on why they do what they do, and that's not necessarily what we should take as as gospel. Good point. Awesome. Great great articles and a perfect segue into our last section here, which. That is obviously a topic that does not have a right answer that we know of. Um, and we will now spend the next five minutes getting all of the right answers from Dr. Kowalski. So I have just four very simple, very straightforward scenarios here that have absolutely a right way to do it. And so we will hear you tell us the right way to do each one of these things, if you'd be so kind. So the first one, a pink pulseless supercondylar comes, you take it at night. After you reduce and pin it, they mm -hmm. have just a biphasic Doppler pulse signal, but not a palpable radial pulse, although their hand is pink and warm. Do you explore or do you observe? I observe. Perfect. I admit them. I evaluate them tomorrow. I observe. Perfect. <laughs> Next question. A nine-year-old, relatively scrawny kid like my son, so my nine-year-old son, comes in with a transverse diaphyseal classic flexible nail femur fracture that you flexi now. Do you put caps on the end or and or do you immobilize them in anything post-op? I do not put end caps and I do use a knee immobilizer to slow them down. Then how long do they keep their knee immobilizer on? I usually have them keep it on until I see them back for their two-week post-op and then I judge it based on the family if I want them to keep it on longer or not but usually at that point they're sticky enough that I get rid of the knee immobilizer. No end capping though. No end capping. Great. A 12, no, 13, 13 month old with a frank hip dislocation comes and you are taking them to the OR for an open reduction. <clears throat> what approach should you use in a 13 month old? Anterior yeah. approach or intermedial approach? This one's hard. Uh, Weinstein's going to listen to this. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so in my training, I had never done an anteromedial approach. As an attending, I have only done anteromedial approach because of the Iowa dogma. And I was taught by Fred Dietz and Stu Weinstein how to do it the right way. So that's So that's right what way. you do. Perfect. Last question. I let Josh Holt do it when he was my third year resident, just for the record. <laughs> Absolutely correct. And the patient loves their hip. Last question. A young male who has a dad who is five foot 11 and a mom who is five foot six has a projected limb length discrepancy of three to four centimeters at skeletal maturity. Do you 
perform an epiphysiodesis or do you lengthen them? <laughs> How old is he? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's, it, he's projected at final growth to be three to four centimeters short. Epiphysiodesis. Okay. So you short. And I am a lengthener, just for the record. I am a lengthener. But is so that is there is there a cutoff? I mean, again, without going into the minutia and the discussion, but in your mind, is there a number that you would then lengthen rather than shorten? More than five centimeters, I'm going to do a lengthening. Um, less than five centimeters, I'm going to have a real strong talk with the family about what a lengthening looks like and that it's going to be their entire summer. Um, cause we only, I only lengthen in the summer in Iowa because that's all I can because of patients. So it's their whole summer. So that's Perfect. why I use that as my cutoff. Well, that's all I've got. You heard it from her, the right way to take care of patients. So, <laughs> well, thank you all. It really a pleasure to have you on Heather. Thanks for taking some thank time guys, with us tonight fun. and to the co-hosts and everyone listening. We are still excited and looking forward to um, seeing everyone at IPOS this year and doing some some work down there. So if you have not, but have an interest in coming down to Orlando the first week of December, um, it will be a good program like it always is. And the podcast crew will be there to stay involved. So thank you all. Thank you guys. Thanks, Heather. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. I really appreciate your time. This was super fun. (laughs) 